In John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. In Hebrews chapter 10, 23, we're reminded, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider one another unto the stimulation of love and good works, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more until you see the day drawing near. In Hebrews chapter 12, we're told, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that's been set before us, looking away unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, we're told, for by grace you've been saved, you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. And the Apostle Paul follows that, uh, or actually we'll follow that from Paul's words in Philippians chapter 2. Verses 12 through 13, of course, after the great picture and portrait of our Savior and his humbling himself and his exaltation before the Father, so then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more, Paul says, in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for God is the one who's working in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure." And the last words of the Apostle Paul to the Ephesian elders included these words in Acts chapter 20, verse 32, which so easily define uh, our focus in our assembly. And now I commend you to God, to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up, to give the inheritance among all those who are being sanctified. As we consider what we're doing in this life, these are some memory verses that I think will be very helpful for us. Some of them perhaps you have memorized. And uh, all of them, I suspect you will eventually have memorized. Let's take a moment for silent prayer. Make sure we're in fellowship with God, and I'll open us in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we praise you and bless you for bringing us together tonight, for the wisdom you've given us to assemble and to focus our attention on you, on your revelation, to learn something about this life, this world, the history in which we find ourselves, which we could not know unless you told us. Father, that's what your word is. It's your special revelation to us, and we thank you for the way it infuses itself. Your spirit uses it in us so that we can evaluate our experience we can think through what we're going through day by day according to what your word has said. And we pray for tonight that you would strengthen us with the portrait of rebellion and the offer of deliverance for that wayward people Ephraim and Judah as we consider Isaiah chapter 28 tonight. Strengthen us for it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The passage before us, if you'll turn to your Bibles, is Isaiah chapter 28. We've been working on this passage for four months or something now, two of which I was out of town for, out of, out of commission. 
in our study of prophets of doom and deliverance, focusing in, in this phase of it on Isaiah, the prophet, who in the New American Standard says, now we're going to do all the entire chapter tonight, and we'll take as long as that takes. So I'm going to talk at a necessary speed uh, to, that where you can hear it, and we won't worry about the clock. Don't look at it. I'll look at it. Woe to the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim, to the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is at the head of the fertile valley of those who are overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has a strong and mighty agent, a storm of hail, a tempest of destruction, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters. He has cast it down to the earth with his hand. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim is trodden underfoot, and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is at the head of the fertile valley, will be like the first ripe fig prior to summer, which one sees, and as soon as it's in his hand, he swallows it. In that day, the Lord of hosts will become a beautiful crown and a glorious diadem to the remnant of his people. A spirit of justice for him who sits in judgment, a strength to those who re- repel the onslaught at the gate, and, those all, and these also reel with the wine and stagger from strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are confused by wine. They stagger from strong drink. They reel while having visions. They totter when rendering judgment. For all the tables are full of filthy vomit without a single clean place. To whom would he teach knowledge? And to whom would he interpret the message? Those just weaned from milk? Those just taken from the breast? For he says, order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. Indeed, he will speak to his people through stammering lips in a foreign language. He who said to them, here is rest, give rest to the weary, and here is repose. But they would not listen. So the word of the Lord to them will be order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there, that they may go and stumble backward, be broken, snared, and taken captive. Therefore, here, we're halfway, verse 14. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, O scoffers who rule this people who are in Jerusalem. Ephraim in verse 1, Jerusalem in verse 14 who rule this people who are in Jerusalem because you've said we've made a covenant with death, with Sheol we've made a pact. The overwhelming scourge will not reach us when it passes by for we have made falsehood our refuge and we have concealed ourselves with deception. Therefore, thus says the Lord God. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the level. Then hail, then, then hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and the waters will overflow the secret place. Your covenant with death will be canceled. Your pact of shield will not stand when the overwhelming scourge passes through. Then you become its trampling place. As often as it passes through, it will seize you for morning after morning. It will pass through any time during the day or night. And it will be a sheer terror to understand what it means. The bed is too short on which to stretch out, and the blanket is too small to wrap oneself in. How's that for an image? Good night, good night sleep there, right? In that kind of situation. For the Lord will rise up as at Mount Perazim. He will be stirred up as at the Valley of Gibeon to do his task, his unusual task, and the, to work his work, his extraordinary work. And now do not carry on as scoffers or your fetters will be made stronger. For I have heard from the Lord of God of hosts of decisive destruction on all the earth. 
Give ear and hear my voice. Listen and hear my words. Does the farmer plow continually to plant seed? Does he continually turn and harrow the ground? Does he not level its surface and sow dill and scatter cumin and plant wheat in rows and barley in its place, rye within its area? For his God instructs and teaches him properly. For dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is the cartwheel driven over cumin, but dill is beaten out with a rod and cumin with a club. Write that down. That's how you raise dill and cumin. Grain for bread is crushed. Indeed, he does not continue to thresh it forever because the wheel of his cart and, the, and his horses eventually damage it. He does not thresh it longer. Thus also comes, this also comes from the Lord of hosts who has made his counsel wonderful and his wisdom great. May God add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. In a challenging passage of scripture by any uh, measure, when you read it in your English Bible. If you're like me, when you read the English uh, translations of the prophets and poetic sections like this, you find it very, very challenging to, full, to try to grasp all that the author is saying and how it all fits together. And if you're like me, a lot of these pieces kind of jump up and say, I can sink my teeth into that one. I know that the stone that's the chief cornerstone, the precious cornerstone, I know that's Jesus because it's quoted in the New Testament. And I remember somewhere or other that that's part of that thing. And I know that there's something about line on line, order on order. And I remember something about uh, this, the covenant with death. But putting this whole thing together is our objective tonight to understand what we just read sort of casually. Now, if we go beyond a casual reading of the Bible to really think through what it's saying and what that means for our lives, then we won't be, watch this, casual tease with our spiritual lives because we'll be strengthened and equipped by God's word to lift the shield of the faith against the wiles of the devil. We're in the Lord of history portion of Isaiah, which is Isaiah chapters 28 through 37. Um, that's the big chunk of Isaiah. And um, why does it say 28 through 37? It, 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 should, it should say 28 through 35. First mistake of the night um, is 28 through 35 is the Lord of history section. And the last two chapters there, 34 and 35, are sort of the stinger on this portion of Isaiah, before you get into the narrative section about Sennacherib and the invasion of the Assyrians into Judah, which is a really neat story of Sennacherib and Hezekiah. And we worked through that actually a few months back. But here in this section, we're slogging through these long poetic sections to understand what God means by what he said. And what you have in chapter 28 tonight is the warning that God is bringing Ephraim that they are going to be uh, destroyed and Judah that they might well be destroyed and they need to watch out and get wise. Uh, the conclusion there is very accessible about the farmer and his conduct, that you don't just thresh and you don't just um, um, plow and harrow. You have to actually do all the tasks. And God's wrath that is destroying his people in the, here in the Assyrian crisis that the northern kingdom and southern kingdoms are facing, that was a temporary thing. His correction is temporary. You only plow and you only uh, harrow for a time, but then it's time to plant and do the other things because a wise farmer knows what he's doing and they learn that from the Lord. It's very accessible, the wisdom that God's judgment, God's discipline for us, for his people in Israel and in, in the day in which Isaiah wrote is a temporary thing and it has an objective and it does what it's supposed to do and we need to just receive it when we need to receive it. So we're gonna end today with wisdom. 
In this section, I just want to outline the whole thing in, in Isaiah chapters 28 through 33 because it's a pretty tight thing that Isaiah did in his arrangement of this big scroll. You have these six woes. These woe oracles are oracles of judgment. And hoy is where you get in Yiddish oive, the idea of, oh boy, that's bad. Hoy is what it says in Hebrew, in biblical Hebrew. And that means there's some sort of sadness. There's some sort of tragedy. Bad news. Bad news for whoever we're talking about. Woe on them is how we translate it in English. Woe coming from the word hoy. 28, chapter 28 is woe to the drunkards in Ephraim and the fools in Judah. That's what we're doing tonight. Ephraim means the northern kingdom of Israel, the 10 tribes of the northern kingdom uh, headquartered in Samaria. Which area? Samaria. The, that's where their headquarters is. Shomron in Hebrew. And the, what's Judah? What does that mean? That's the southern kingdom with Jerusalem and Judea and what's left of the tribe of Benjamin after the civil war uh, concluding the book of Judges. So this is a, a woe oracle on the drunkards in Ephraim and the fools in Judah. And in chapter 29, it is the first half of chapter 29 is woe to Ariel, another name for Judah, for lack of relationship due to a lack of knowledge. And that's a theme that runs through this whole thing. You, you are in trouble with God because you're not connecting to him as you should. And there's a reason why you don't. It isn't about how you feel. It isn't about what's going on in history. It's about your personal access to God's revelation. And are you doing what you should with God's revelation? And they don't know God, and therefore they're not serving God, and they're serving themselves. And so because that's the cause and the judgment oracle is the effect we see a lot in common with our day in the cause. We don't know God as a people. We're rebelling against God as our norm. It's the more and more the cultural norm that you don't do what you do because God said, or you don't avoid things because God said to avoid them. You do what you do because you feel like it or because the culture thinks it's okay, or you know that's just how we do it. And so we ask the question, is the judgment oracle God had for national Israel under Leviticus 26 and the disobey me and get the discipline that I promise, is that something that we as a nation or any Gentile nation should expect given that you have the same cause? And the answer is you can't do that direct covenant application nationally that God had with Israel. But what you can do is be wise and say, all the nations are rebelling against God and you better not. There's always a remnant. There's always people. There have always been people in every nation, um, at least in the Christian era, who have known God, who have, since Paul did his missionary journey, as the gospel is proliferated, nations have risen and fallen, but there have always been people that represent Jesus Christ, and the gospel doesn't dry up just because the Roman Empire goes away. Uh, the gospel proceeds, and it's on the march. And the work of the church that Jesus is, has us doing, of making disciples of all the nations, continues. So we really need to think of ourselves as international, as the body of Christ, and we need to recognize nations but not try to directly apply God's national pattern for Israel to our nation. It's a bad thing to do that because it replaces Israel with Gentile nations, and the Bible never does that. There is still God's plan for future national Israel. But nevertheless, you can learn a lot about God's judgment and his plan and his purpose and his dealings with his children as you watch his dealings with national Israel. In chapter 29, verses 15 through 14, you have the focal issue of their devising plans without Yahweh. They're not consulting God for their plans. And what are their plans? Their plans are to deal with the Assyrians, well, what's the problem with the Assyrians? Well, God sent them because they're being judged for their idolatry. So is there a problem with the Assyrians? No, it's with God. And so they're gonna, they got a plan. We're going to go to Egypt. We're going to fix this. You know, I got to fix this. 
because God will bring something else. Because you're not going to out chest maneuver God. God is bringing discipline, and what you need to do with Him is stop it. Stop. Just stop. If you're in a hole, stop digging. And they and they they didn't, and they were eventually destroyed by the Assyrians. We're going to start another sort of cycle in chapter 30 with uh, the, the rebellious children who execute a plan, which is kind of connected to chapter 29, the devisers of plans without the Lord. And this is now about Judah, and they're going to Egypt. And so it's focusing in chapter 31 through 32, they're going down to Egypt. Woe who, to those who go down to Egypt. And then finally to the destroyer. And this is a really interesting thing. Who's the destroyer in chapter 33? Who is the destroyer? It's Assyria. It's the instrument that God is using to bring his discipline on his people. They're under the ban from God as well. They're under God's discipline too. But wait a second. He raised them up to to destroy the northern kingdom. He raised them up, almost destroyed the southern kingdom. So what do you mean they're under God's wrath? Well, they're going to suffer or they're suffering the consequences, I should say, of their problems, their rebellion, and their arrogance against God. Uh, does anyone remember where we hear a judgment oracle pronounced against Assyria from a prophet to the Assyrians? Anybody know of a prophet that went to the Assyrians and said, y'all got 40 days? He didn't quite say it that way, but he was, he was, kind of, he was from, it seemed like the south, at least, where he was traveling. So southern Judah. So y'all, y'all need to repent 40 days. That's Jonah. And why, why didn't I say to the Assyrians? We all learned in Sunday school that he went to Nineveh. I mean, I don't know anything else about the story, but he's from Nineveh. He went to Nineveh. And that's, that's not Assyria. Actually, that's the capital of Assyria. That's their Hartford. That's the capital of the Assyrian Empire in some phases of it. And so, yeah, Jonah, the prophet to the Assyrians. So, yeah, woe to the destroyer is God's message to Assyria of his wrath on those who he will use to destroy the, the northern kingdom. Well, um, this is a, a great portrait in what we've just summarized of theology, of what God is like. He's in control. He has a plan. He has a purpose. He deals with us as rational, responsible agents, and we have to make our choices. He deals with us, and we have to, we have to deal with him. And it's personal, and it's also individuals make individual decisions, and those aggregate into national decisions. We see that on display in this as well, and God deals, deals with the nation, but it's because of their individual choices that have become cultural norms to idolatry. And so there's a lot here theologically, but the biggest thing is that God is going to do what God wants to do, and you and I need to figure out how we relate to that. God is God, and we are not. And so it's called in, in Scripture, the fear of the Lord is the beginning. It's the starting point in knowledge. It's the starting point of getting uh, this thing with God's wisdom, right. All right. What, what you can summarize chapters 28 through 29 is that there's moral failure for the nation, both the Southern and the Northern kingdom, because they rejected their relationship with the Lord. That's the summary. They're drunkards, not because uh, someone planted a vineyard, but because they've rejected Yahweh and they're seeking their satisfaction in life, their stimulation, their fulfillment somewhere besides him. And that's the problem of relationship with the Lord, and it's evident throughout that passage. And chapters 30 through 33, the problem there is a more specific instance of that initial problem of relationship. They're trying to find relief from God's discipline in human agency from going to the Egyptians. 
And so when you, when you summarize it this way, there's lots of application for you and me in our daily lives. Why do we stop doing the things that we should do? Because we're not thinking of what God wants. Why do we do the things we shouldn't do? Because we're not thinking of what God wants. Every choice to commit personal sin, beloved, individual, believers, every choice to commit personal sin is a personal decision you're making, and it has an impact on your personal relationship with God. It's, it is saying, God has said, but I in this moment don't care about that as, or him as much as what, whatever my lust is, whatever the urge is, whatever you're struggling with. And that's the personal side of the problem of personal sin and morality. And this is why you can't just dismiss morality, no matter how hard you try in a godless frame, you can't dismiss it to just ethics based on cultural norms or call it ethics. This is just how we do it. You can't do that because God is there and he has an opinion. And his opinion is when it is opposed to what we think, say, and do, that opinion is expressed as a judgment. And it's a holy, righteous, good, loving, infinitely glorious judgment. And that's the way reality works. There is right and wrong because God is and he has an opinion about it. So there's a lot here in this passage on the Lord of history in chapters 28 through 33. And we'll just get through the first little part of it tonight, the Lord willing. In verses 1 through 6, the question is which crown? What do you want for your crown? That's the passage that he's talking about. He uses the crown in at least three verses. And at first, it's the crown of glory and exaltation of these drunkards in Ephraim. And it ends with those that will respond to God as they should, he will be a crown to them. So which crown? Do you want the crown of your glory? Do you want the crown of God's love, presence, relationship? That's the issue. And it's not... <laughs> kill Roy. I saw that, Kilroy. Glory. Which crown? The second piece in verses 7 through 13 is that the leadership in Ephraim is going to be taken captive. That's what we just read about. And it's, it's, it's almost as though it's settled. And it's an, it's a, listen, Isaiah is speaking as a prophet in Judah about what God is doing in their history. And they don't have a newspaper and they can't Google it. And, and they couldn't know from the newspaper or Google anyway, because that's not God speaking. This is God through the prophet Isaiah to these people, that this is what's about to happen to the Northern kingdom. Verses 14 through 21, you have this concept, this image of their covenant with death and their pact with Sheol or the abode of the dead. Covenant with death and pact with Sheol, which is foolishness on Judah's part because they should be engaging their covenant with Yahweh. And they can't make a deal with death. If we've, we've paid death off and death won't come over is the idea. We've already paid him and he said he won't come to our house. So we're clear, we're good to go. And that's the, see, God's bringing this, this scourge, this Assyrian death to their doorstep in discipline. And I believe this is how divine discipline works, what it is. And it's, I get this from the Old Testament, and then when I look at it in the New Testament, it's a consistent picture. There is judgment and wrath that is God's judicial uh, sentence for what should be done because of sin. There is judgment and wrath. So far, so good. And that's what Jesus paid on the cross for our sins, what we deserved. Our sins, all of them, deserve separation eternally from God. All of them, the petty ones that we're not worried about, are still an infinite transgression because it's transgressing an infinite righteousness. 
So our sin isn't infinite, but the offense is because God's righteousness is infinite. That's my mathematics of that. I, I think I'm right about that. But, but to understand it's a huge thing that you've sinned in the presence of infinitely righteous God. Now, we don't get ever what we deserve. And you can't call God's discipline punishment in that sense if punishment means paying your debt. Because you don't get to pay your debt. Jesus alone paid the debt. And that was the promise from Genesis 3. Uh, and that's what happened at the cross. And that's why the centerpiece of history is the cross of Christ. But we still have to deal with divine discipline. Divine discipline is not God's wrath and judgment giving us what we deserve. Oh, you're going to do that? Well, then you're going to have to pay for your sin. You can't pay for your sin, but God does uh, spank us from time to time. A spanking is not what you deserve. A spanking is training for you to learn that that's the wrong way. I better get back on the path. This is how I understand the concept of discipline versus the concept of judgment or punishment, if you will. And I know some, sometimes we'll use the word punishment to mean discipline. But discipline, understand the underlying word there is disciple. It's training for a student. And I like to use the rod illustration. The rod is often described in the scriptures as the instrument of God's discipline. It's also uh, used as the instrument of parental dis parental discipline in Proverbs. And so what is the rod? And don't let people that you know, write blogs confuse you about this. Go do your own work in the, in the scriptures. I can show you some lexicons to go dig in, and we can, we can find some good stuff. But the rod is um, what you think a rod is. It's thin. It's probably not longer than a, a yard for us or a meter for the rest of the world. Um, it's probably not much longer than three feet. And it's lightweight, and its, its strokes cause great pain at a, at a shallow level. That's sort of the idea. It's sting. It's a bad sting. Now, you can whip someone with rods, and we have that in the scriptures and various torturings of disciples and the apostle Paul and Jesus. The beating with rods by the Romans was not a, a light, tender, disciplinary correction from a loving father. It was a flailing you alive or softening you up at least so that they could do it with their, their whips. But, but the rod is, um, is this instrument that's designed for correction. And I, I believe that the picture uh, that, that we have in Psalm 23, your rod and your staff, or if you're in the New English translation of 1620, thy rod and thy staff. Okay, what does that mean? Staff is a bigger stick. It's like a walking stick or something that you'd use in a walking thing, and you have a big, a big something to hit a lion with, for example. That'd be the staff. The rod, you, hopefully you don't have to go up against a lion with a rod. The rod is this little thing that you use for discipline. You're not whipping the little sheep with the staff. You're defending them with the staff. The rod is a little tag there. Hey, get back on the trail. It's the little shepherd boy. I saw dozens of them traveling through the Isle province in Iraq in our little Humvees. We had to stop for sheep all the time, these little shepherd kids. They all had just a little, like a bamboo, a little piece of bamboo or something that they used. They couldn't do their job without it, but it wasn't as little bit more than nothing. They would just kind of tap the sheep that were starting to drift away from the, from the, the road, the circuitous dirt, unimproved roads. 30 miles takes three hours. Um, he would... Uh, he would tap him on the hind quarter, and the little thing would, would jump at the, at the touch. And it, it couldn't have hurt it, but it, it was the correction. And the little sheep jumped and got back on the path, and then he'd run, and little boys running and flip-flops, 
and, um, or, la- or barefoot, and, just, and they would just tap the little hindquarters of the sheep to get them back on the trail. And I think that's how divine discipline works. And that can be a serious, painful thing, especially if we're insensitive to that initial tap. I want to be like that sheep that I get a little tap and I'm back on the trail. I don't want to be the kind of sheep that's like, uh-huh, and then God taps some more and what? I think I'm going to keep going over here. Oh, really? And, and we'll test God's determination to be our shepherd. Maybe he'll let me go and just leave me, leave me alone. Well, maybe he won't. And maybe divine discipline gets progressively more uh, unbearable. But it's still not you paying for your sins. It's still God saying, get back on the path. Get back on the path. And so um, this is the spirit, I believe. In, and now notice what happens. Armies march on their soil. It's the worst thing that ever happens in the country, especially to women and children, as we're seeing in Israel today. You never want a military force, no matter how ragtag, and, uh, and, and disorganized, or no matter how terroristic or barbaric, you never want an enemy force to march on your soil. You always want a wall of whatever material you can find and strong and well-trained men to stand between um, our loved homes and the war's desolation, as we sang in our national anthem. You, you never want an army marching on your soil. But this is divine discipline, as promised in Leviticus 26, for covenant violation. And it eventually would be complete removal from the land and losing their country, which is what happened. But still, you and I receive the same idea of divine discipline from the same loving creator. Now, I don't think we're in a covenant relationship uh, of the Mosaic covenant where God has these do this, I'll do that kind of thing. But he is our father and he does bring correction. And Proverbs chapter 3 is still true, even as the writer of Hebrews quotes it, whom the Lord loves. Let me put it in King James. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourges with a whip every son whom he receives. That sounds very loving. Thank you. I want to avoid that kind of love. Let's do the other thing. Let's get the hug and the, hey, you're doing a good job kind of love as opposed to the, I love you anyway, bend over kind of love. And that's the, um, that's the idea of divine discipline as we're seeing through here. So they've got this foolish covenant with death and God's going to disabuse them of their folly. And then in chapter 28, verses 22 through 30, listen to wisdom is the message. Listen to the wisdom of God's word and think about what you're dealing with this discipline from God, but God isn't always going to discipline. It's very simple um, agriculture. We don't always plow and harrow. Sometimes we plant. In fact, the plowing and harrowing is so that you can plant and get a crop. What that says translated into English is, woe to the crown of arrogance of the drunkards of Ephraim. The crown of arrogance of the drunkards of Ephraim. My Hebrew students have a field day with this verse because you have so many ofs in that sentence, but we're not going to dig into it too much. But this is the summary as we've seen in the past. Woe to the crown of arrogance of the drunkards of Ephraim. And the crown of arrogance is, a, is an image to talk about how they're high and mighty in independence from God. And they're wearing the wrong crown is the idea. And the withering blossom of that crown's glorious beauty, woe to that crown, to that self-importance and self-exaltation and self-indulgence. And that crown is upon the head of the valley of oil of those who've been struck down by wine. We start with drunkards. We end the, in the verse with those struck down by wine. And what is the valley of oil? In my English translation, it translated the fertile valley. The fertile valley. You could translate this word shemen as, as fat because it's, it's oil. 
And so the idea is that they're wealthy and they're comfortable. And this is poetic language to describe people that are self-important and self-indulgent in wealth and comfort who need to recognize they're in a lot of trouble. And you cannot claim I have God's favor because I'm prosperous. God is about to use that prosperity to uh, highlight how displeased he is with them. Behold, a firm and mighty one for the Lord, like a heavy rainstorm of hail, a disastrous storm, like a heavy rainstorm of water, a mighty overflow. He, that's God, will let it rest on the earth with his hand. So he's describing the arrogance of the people in this uh, valley of fatness. And then he describes, I've got a correction and it's coming. And the image he uses as a poet, the image in his artistic expression is a surge of water, a surge of rain, of hail, a disastrous storm. And so you think you're comfortable and on the height, but you're about to be overwhelmed, as it were, with water. At the feet, she will be trampled down, the crown of arrogance. Now, the she is the crown. It's the, sum, it's the, it's the subject, will, will be trampled down. It's a passive construction. She, the crown, will be trampled down. Which crown? The crown of arrogance of the drunkards of Ephraim. So their symbol of their exaltation. So Paul is, I'm sorry. So Isaiah is basically saying, your arrogance is about to become your shame and you're going to be humiliated. Where you're right now exalted, you're about to be humbled. And that's a major theme we're seeing yet again in the book of Isaiah. Arrogance, self-promotion, self-importance is something God is looking to mow down. And humility before him is something he will exalt. And that's the pattern in both the Old and New Testaments. So the crown of arrogance will be trampled down. In verse 4, and then it will be what? Will be the fading flower of his glorious splendor, which is upon the head of the valley of oil, like an early fig before summer, which when, seeing, when the seeing one sees it, that moment in his hand he swallows it. <laughs> and that's, um, again, idiomatic Hebrew language. Your English Bible smooths it out. But this is the kind of verse that makes this so hard. He's poetically saying, imagine if, if you saw a fig, if you were the seeing one that saw a fig, and you're just like, ooh, that one's ready. And that one's gone. And you didn't see my hand move, but I've already swallowed it. <laughs> That's the picture. As it's quick, what's about to happen to you is going to happen quickly. And you're all glorious and exalted. But that fading flower of glorious splendor on you, Samaria, the head of the valley of oil, the fertile valley, you're going to be swallowed. And that's exactly what happens to them. In that day, Bayom Hahu, in that day, the Lord Sabaoth, and I talked about this with you before, Yahweh, um, uh, Sabaoth, this is the name of uh, one of the names for God throughout these judgment oracles. He is the Lord, the one who says, I am, in Genesis, or so in Exodus chapter 3. He's the self-existent one, and his name is Hayah. See these little dots and squiggles right here? This is actually pretty cool. Um, this word looks almost identical to that word. Isn't it? Yeah, but they're not identical. This word is he will be, or it will happen, or it will be. This word is Yahweh, the, the sacred name of God, the Tetragrammaton, translated in your Bible, Lord. Now understand, I am translating from Hebrew into English, and my objective is to bring you something that you couldn't necessarily have gotten from your cursory English reading, but you get most of it from that. But you can't get everything. So for example, this is, really, this is an example where I can kind of show you the name of God, Yahweh, is really close to the third person um, um, masculine cow perfect for, or cow, sorry, imperfect for Hayah to be. He is. 
His name is not translated he is, but it's really close. Yod, hey, yod, hey, yod, hey, vav, hey. It's really close to that. And, and it's mysterious how that's related, but it's, we think it is related. Um, and I believe that the idea in Yahweh, translating it Adonai or Lord is, is a, a summary thing to do. But I think it's better to recognize that it's based on that third person, uh, probably plural, um, uh, Hayah, and its self-existence. He is and no one else makes it so. Everything else in God's creation is contingent on him making it that way. Nobody made him. He just is. I think that's the, in that is the eternal present of God. He's always been and always will be. I think that's true, and I have some questions for him about that, but that's my theory. So, in that day, the Lord of the armies, Sabaoth, the Lord of the many multitudes, that's the Lord of the armies, will be a beautiful crown and a radiant diadem for the remnant of his people. Now, did you, in your, in your little reading, as we sat down and just read, and you dozed off, and you, no, 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 I want to really read this, and you disciplined yourself to read Isaiah 28 when you did that. Did you notice that we switched crown language in verse 5? This is one of those things that will jump out at you in your English reading, and he becomes the crown. Now, before their arrogance is a crown, their self-importance, their I'm about, it's about me. The thing every one of you and I, we all struggle with, it's about me. Me, 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 me. And that's how the Sumerians think, and that's how the Americans think, and that's how you think at times. But that arrogance is an option. You can choose to live under that and let that be your this is my story. But what you should do is what verse 5 says. The remnant, the believers, the remnant of his people will wear him as their crown. He will be their glory. That's what you want. But I'm glorious on my own. You don't want that. You don't want that. It's, it's just not going to cut it. It's, um, it's little kids... Making, uh, making paper hats out of toilet paper. And I'm not going to tell you whether it's used toilet paper. <laughs> Our glory is really nothing. But God will be their glory. He will be the glory that they, of the diadem of their crown. That's, this is wisdom. Make a choice. What's the, where's your scale of values? See, what, what do you value? Do you value your feelings? Do you value God's word? For one example. Do you value... Uh, your past and what you've learned and dealt with with your past? Or do you value God's word so that you can properly interpret your past through what God has actually said? Do you value your self-importance or do you let God be God in your heart, I mean, and say that's, he is what's all important? That's the scale of values that will happen for you if you uh, take the cautionary tale of this first chunk of Isaiah 28. For the spirit of judgment unto the one who sits in judgment and for strength unto those who turn back warfare at the gate. That's what he'll be. He'll be a crown for, now listen to it. He'll be a crown for the people that were before trying to crown themselves with arrogance and self-importance and pride. He will be a crown for them and for the remnant and a spirit of judgment for the king who sits in judgment. It'll be God and his glory that is uh, the spirit of empowerment for the king and the warriors working under the king, throwing back warfare at the gate, they'll be empowered by him too, strength from him. Do you want God to fight your battles or do you want to fight them? Right? This is, what, this is the, the alternative. And that's what Isaiah is saying. And we really had to think about that for a minute in that poetic section to, to chew that a little bit. But here it is. Who's your crown? 
And do you want to be part of that remnant that has God for your glory and for your battles and for your judgment and for your wisdom? And of course, that's what we want. And here you in this age have the Holy Spirit living in you. Every believer in Jesus receives the Holy Spirit the very moment, the instant of simple childlike faith in Christ as your Savior. And you have now an empowerment, an earnest, Paul says, of the inheritance for a lifetime of service, you have the, every power, every ability that you need to do what God has told you he wants you to do. You can check it out in his word what he wants you to do. That means that when you say, I just can't love her because she's unlovable, ah, 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 you have the Holy Spirit. He's the earnest of the inheritance. The fruit of the Spirit is love. You can love her, but you can't do it from your own resources. You can do it in God's power. You can do any and every single thing God wants you to do because you have infinite holiness and power from the Holy Spirit to do what God calls you to do. The problem is we get presumptuous and we think that we're going to do things God hasn't told us to do. I think we're going to use, this is crazy language, we're going to use the Holy Spirit to do it. Holy Spirit, activate. I'm going to make the, I'm going to do this thing and the Holy Spirit's just going to have to help me do it. And you may be out over your skis a little bit because it may be something God didn't tell you to do. Well, how do I know what God told me to do? Well, let's start with the things he actually told us in the Bible. Let's start with what we're certain that he said and let our little emotional leanings and liver quivers to the side and be serious students or disciples of our Savior in his word. And we want the wisdom to turn, to, the wisdom to judge and the, the strength to turn those back who attack at the gate. We want God to be our power, our strength that goes before us. So there's lots that you could apply through here, and it's kind of one way or the other. You can be arrogant and self-important, or you can have God as your glory and your, and your, your wisdom and your strength. Which one? Which crown? Indeed, also, these who with wine reel and beer, now we're in the next section. Um, no, we're, no we're, still talking to, we're still talking to Ephraim. Also, these who with wine reel and beer stagger. And you can look in your Bible all day, and you'll never see the word beer. But it's right here. Shekar. And there was no, there was no uh, Mountain Dew or White Latin or any of that. Uh, Mountain Dew kids are thinking soda. There was no moonshine or distillation of spirits to make uh, ethanol in this day in which we're reading. That's not or methanol or any of the other alls. They were simply fermenting uh, fruit from the field or grain. And that fermented fruit is called wine, and fermented grain is generally called beer. And that's what he's talking about here. With wine, they're reeling. With beer, they're staggering. The priests and prophets stagger with beer. They're swallowed up from the wine. Notice the language could also be translated confused. If your Bible says confused, you don't get the, the, the pun. These people swallowing a bunch of beer and wine have been swallowed up by the wine. It eats you. It's a dissipator. They stagger from the beer. They reel when they're having a vision. In the vision. And they totter in giving verdict. So they're dispensing their duties as prophets and priests, but they're not doing it um, with God. They're doing it through, um, the, through intoxication. And uh, that, is not, that is not God's plan. That's a shame. And it's written this way, so you'll feel the shame of it. For all the tables are filled with vomit, spew of filth, or excrement. Pick your way you want to translate that word. Uh, um, with no place untouched. 
There's no place to go from the filth that is cause effect overdoing those things. You have these bodily functions that are out of control. And so uh, inside out, it's gross. Sorry to say, but that's the scriptures. Whom will he teach knowledge? Now, who's he? I've translated it with a lowercase h. These are supposed to be the prophets and priests that are giving vision and, and, uh, and giving verdicts. Whom will he teach knowledge? With whom will he make understand the message? Those weaned from milk, those just taken from the breast. Is he talking about God? There's no one I can teach because there's no one that can understand it. They're all drunk. Is that what it means? Or does it mean that the, the people that are supposed to be teaching are going to teach babies because they're babies? I, I, I'm not really sure about that one, but I know what's coming is very interesting. And here is the message. What will he teach them? Which? La, it says, Tsav la Tsav. And tzava is a command, and so we think this is like command for command, but it's baby talk. It sounds like gibberish because foreign speech sounds like gibberish. Tzav la tzav, tzav la tzav, and kav la kav, which rhymes with that, kav la kav, which we think is translated line on line. It could be string for string. Um, we're measuring String for string, I, I, or is this line of military troops upon line of military troops? That's how he's going to use it. Kavlakov, Kavlakov, Za'er Sha'am, Za'er Sha'am. That means a little here, a little here. It doesn't say a little here, a little there. It says a little here twice, if you're watching closely, or a little there twice. Za'er Sha'am. So this is the message. And y'all, he does this twice in Isaiah 28. And when you're reading it, I know. It's very challenging, and again, that's one of the reasons we've assembled tonight to go take on this challenge. But notice we're talking about talking to babies, those weaned from milk, those just taken from the breast, for, or which is this message, a little, or command for command, command for command, line for line, line for line, a little here, a little here, is um, definitely like a baby talk sounding rhyme. And uh, we've read, in all likelihood, Kav and Tsav are old names for letters of the alphabet, which a teacher would use in lessons. So, so Tsav would perhaps be Tsadi. We call it Tsadi today. And Kav is likely the Kof, letter Kof. Perhaps that's one of the thoughts of what's going on here is that we're doing baby talk and we're teaching ABCs. And it sounds like the ABCs, but we're struggling with this gibberish sounding thing. And, and he's going to say it again. And this is the point. With stammering lips and with another tongue, that's a foreign language. By the way, tongue in the Bible is usually when it's talking about something like a reference to language. It's just, it just means language. We use that word tongue for language even in English, less commonly than the New, New and Old Testaments, but we do use it that way. With another tongue, he will speak to this people. Now, what's the other tongue? It's the foreign-sounding gibberish of the Assyrians, speaking an actual language. Who before had said to them, this is a resting place, give rest to the weary, and this is repose. That means God is your resting place, and he will provide for you. The one who said that is going to speak to them with stammering lips. They wouldn't listen to his message before of peace and blessing and a land flowing with milk and honey as they took refuge in him. So they weren't willing to listen to that message. And so it will be for them the word of the Lord. Kav, tsav letsav, tsav letsav, kav lakav, kav lakav, za ersham, za ersham. It says it again in verse 13. 
So I believe, and I'm not, um, I'm not dogmatic about this, but my best understanding of what's happening is that we have baby talk, we have um, uh, something that before, I'm not really certain how it was being used, but here in 13a, I believe this is what it looks like when the army marches, line for line, line for line, a little here, a little here. They're going to advance without retreat, and they're going to be speaking in a language that's foreign, and God is now going to speak to them with stammering lips, meaning from the Assyrians. Now, notice the stammering lips. We just talked about the drunkards. That's a play. That's a thematic play on words. Now, in Acts chapter 2, when they're speaking only foreign languages, there is no biblical gibberish for tongues. There's no, known, there's, no, there's no ecstatic gibberish language in the Bible. The tongues thing in the early church was always foreign languages that the people didn't know. And miraculously, in the power of the Spirit, they could then speak. And so the modern glossolalia is not the biblical tongues that's being practiced. Now, I have friends that will say that on the mission field, they know of instances where someone spoke uh, an existing language that they didn't know, and it was like in, in, on the frontier of the gospel or something. And, um, and that's a totally different consideration than the modern charismatic movement, which, which considers ecstatic gibberish utterance to be the tongues of Acts 2 and 1 Corinthians 14, but it's not. And, um, and it's important to understand that. Uh, what's happening here is, much like in Acts chapter 2, when Peter has to stand up and say, no, they're not drunk. They're being accused of being drunk because they're ecstatically speaking foreign languages that sound, uh, it sounds like a gibberish party of many different languages all kind of cacophonic, in a cacophony kind of coming together in that, in that one small space. And so Peter gets up and says, they're not drunk. It's, it's midday. We're just, this is what was said in, in Joel. This is the work of the Holy Spirit, and they're, pre they're preaching in foreign languages. And this was in Pentecost. You had a feast. You had um, diaspora Jews that spoke all the languages of the Mediterranean showing up, and they were hearing the glory of God praised in those languages that they had grown up with by Jews from Judea who didn't know those languages. That's the gift of tongues in Acts 2 and 1 Corinthians and, and elsewhere in the early church. It was a manifestation of God's presence. And so uh, notice the, the foreign language thing compared with drunkenness. It's a theme that you have in this context and you have in that context. So they will go and stumble backward and be broken and be snared and taken captive. Now, the reason it's that, that's the reason the conclusion is that they're taken captive is because the people saying, Tzav Litzav, Kav Litzav, that that's the Syrian army with their foreign stammering lips coming to take you captive. And they are going to be broken backward and taken captive. Now notice, in summary, I know it's difficult exegesis, but in summary, we can definitely see some very clear things. God had a message of peace and offered it to them, and they couldn't hear and receive his message of peace because they're either drunk or they're just in rebellion and arrogance, and they're closing themselves off to God's revelation, the actual word of God, not the made-up mystical leanings that we have, the actual revelation of God through the prophet. They had closed themselves off to God's actual word, and so God is going to bring, as a consequence, this judgment of military invasion. And that turns the corner in the oracle to Judah. In verse 14, we go to talk to Judah. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, literally men of scoffing. This is for my Hebrew uh, first semester students 
Anshe Latzon. Okay, the Latzon is the word um, translated here, scoffing, and it's an adjective from um, a noun word that uh, we have all through the Proverbs. The Laetz is the scoffer. And so this is people that are known for scoffing, men of scoffing, who rule this people who are in Jerusalem. So the, the, the rulers, and have you ever heard of that before? Where the people in Jerusalem, the leadership in Jerusalem are scoffers at God's word, God's revelation. Have you heard of that? You know, Yeshua is another word for salvation. And if you translate it into English, Yeshua, salvation. And when God's word, the word who became flesh, went to Judea in the first century, the leadership did exactly what's being described here. They scoffed. And they said, when Jesus said um, uh, what he said in their trial, they said, who, uh, what else can we do? We must, uh, we must convict for blasphemy, for him making himself out to be God. When God's word shows up, scoffers reject it because they feel like it. And their, their God is their stomach. Their uh, end is destruction. And uh, as we read in uh, Philippians chapter one, who rule this people who are in Jerusalem. That's what these people are. These, now he's addressing the leadership. Because you've said, now you people in charge, have, you've done a slick thing. You've cut a covenant with death and with Sheol. We've made a pact, they say. The overwhelming scourge, only used here, this idea of the overwhelming scourge is an is a, a image that Isaiah comes up with. When it passes by, it won't reach us. We, we won't have, we made a deal. For we have made a lie our place of refuge. With deception, we've concealed ourselves. Now, they're not actually saying we've made a lie our refuge, but that's what they're, that's what they're doing. So, so this is one of those deals where someone's speaking the truth to a person that won't look at himself, and he's giving him a shot in the, just a, a, a chance. This is just a chance for you to come to yourself. The thing that you're hiding in is a lie. You're deceiving yourself that this will be a solution. And it ultimately is that they're going to use the Egyptians as their refuge. And so God calls them out for their misplaced trust. And he has an absolute right to do that because the only, the only object for our faith that will never fail us is God himself. And he's the one bringing the Assyrians and they're trusting in others to solve the Assyrian problem. We're going to grab God's hand that's got the, the, the rod in it and we're going to hold it back and not let him spank us. That's what they're doing. And that's stupid that you can't. And the, do the math. God's omnipotence and righteousness and love and all those things that are motivating his actions and me and the Egyptians. Who's going to win that one? Right? Faith knows the answer pretty quickly. If you understand who God is, then you can do that math. But if you don't, if you're just ignoring him, then you don't even think about what he's doing. Therefore, thus says the Lord Yahweh. Again, here you have Adonai Yahweh. So the Adonai is the word in Hebrew for Lord. And then they say the name, which we'll just put in English transliteration, Yahweh. Behold me, he says, Hineni, behold me, I'm laying in Zion a stone. Now this is our... Christological portion. This is messianic. This is talking about that I've got a word for you, you who want to make a covenant with death. Behold, I'm laying a stone in Zion a stone. Let me describe it: a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, literally a foundation being founded. He who trusts will not be in a hurry. 
I wish it said shaken or moved or something more obvious, but the word here is to be in a hurry, and it's explicitly in a hurry. And so why are they in a hurry? Because they're spazzing about the, um, the, the threat of invasion, which they should be. They're in a hurry to find a place to hide from the Assyrians or in a hurry to find a way to get God's hand to, to bring back his wrath. But this is the stability that's promised for those who put their faith in God's solution. The solution to our sin is not to say we're going to stop God from correcting sin. The solution to our sin is that Jesus Christ paid for our sins on the cross. I will make justice the measuring line, Kav, and righteousness the mason's level. Then hail will sweep away the refuge of a lie, and it's the place of refuge, that refuge that you're hiding in. God's wrath, God's discipline is coming. He's going to remove that provision. See, they're hiding in Egypt, and God's going to just remove that. That's not going to be something they can hide, hide behind anymore. And the hiding place with overflow with water. So my storm from verse one, the overwhelming storm, that's the Syrians is going to come through and uh, remove all of this, this vestige of self-protection that you're making with these false covenants. And it will be canceled. What? Your covenant with death. So you don't get to have that covenant with death because I'm going to remove it from, uh, from any kind of appearance of effectiveness. And you're packed with Sheol, the place of the dead, not the grave, the place of the dead will not stand. The overwhelming scourge, when it passes by, the Assyrians, then you will be for a trampling ground. For it, you'll be a trampling ground for, for it. As often as that scourge passes by, it will take you. For morning by morning, it will pass by in daytime or nighttime. And it will be only terror to understand the report. When people hear what happened when the overwhelming scourge swings by, oh no, they're coming back. When someone is an observer and reports what happened, it's a terror to anyone that hears the report. And that's what's happened, for example, in my experience, just watching the videos that Hamas released of their celebrations and their desecration of corpses and, and, uh, and, and kidnapping of children and torture of people. What I saw in these videos that Hamas themselves released celebrating their victory and their terroristic act um, it's a terror to anyone that hears or sees the report of what's done to these babies. And it's, you, you just grind your teeth and say, uh, that's too much. There has to be an overwhelming reckoning with that. That's, that's the kind of, um, that just comes to mind as we read it. It will be a t only terror to understand the report. I don't even want to read this because of what horrors await me. Right, And um, if you're in part of the American news blackout where you don't know what's going on because you're watching mainstream media, and so you've no real, really no idea you think there's a cycle of violence between Israel and the, and the, and the Palestinians or something, you know, other satanic lie that you're being fed by anti-Semites, I recommend you find better places to get your information because the, the, the rest of the world isn't under the same blackout. And, um, but there's a problem with American media for sure. And uh, you can talk to me offline if you want to know where I go for some of my um, um, uh, news. But um, some of the news right now is only terror to understand the report, like Isaiah says here. Indeed, it is too short, the bed which to stretch out, and the blanket is too narrow with which to wrap oneself. You know, I want to do a long exposition on this verse, but it's pretty self-explanatory. You're trying to cover up with a napkin. There's just no joy. There's no, isn't it nice to cover up in a bed with a nice big fluffy blanket when, when you need one, when it's cool out? You know, sometimes you have to open the windows to get it cool enough, and you're like, I'm going to cover up with a blanket. Well, this blanket doesn't really provide anything for you. Um, Jiminy Cricket would enjoy it, but you will not. And you're almost like short-sheeted. 
uh, in your bed. There's no way, <laughs> there's no way to, uh, to stretch out. And so you're miserable and um, there's no comfort and there's no relief. For like Mount Perizim, now this is, I take it explanatory to that. Mount, for like Mount Perizim, the Lord will rise up as the Valley of Gibeon, he'll be stirred up. So we're going back to Old Testament examples of God's conquests to do his task, his unusual task, to do his work, his extraordinary work. So think about what he's going to rise up to do. And now I do not carry on as scoffers, lest your fetters be made stronger for of destruction and a determined end. I've heard from the Lord, Yahweh Sabaoth upon the earth. So this is parallel to Isaiah 2, or sorry, Psalm 2. Therefore take heed, O judges of the earth, kiss the Lord, worship the Lord with reverence and, and that, that you not perish. You know wrath is coming and you aren't going to be able to, to, to hide behind Egypt as your covenant with, with death. So what you need to do is just go to the Lord. Go humble yourself before him. And that's the wisdom that he's enjoining. And we close with the wisdom oracle of pay attention, Judah. Give ear and hear my voice. Listen attentively and hear my word. Does all day the plowman plow to sow? Meaning, if he's got a day to do his whole thing, is it all plowing? God's plowing. He's bringing the wrath. But it's not going to be all wrath. That's the message. There's hope in this. Does he only break apart and harrow his ground? Is that the whole job of the farmer? No. That's the first task. He's got to break that soil up to plant the seeds. That's the idea he's presenting. Will he not level its surface and sow dill and scatter cumin and set wheat in rows, barley in its place, and rye in its area? That was a real fun verse to translate. Wheat, barley, rye. He instructs him properly. His God teaches him. See, the farmer knows, and so should you. There's a right way to farm, and the plowing stuff is just one step in the process. God has a purpose here, and the farmer knows it because God instructs him. What he's saying is there's wisdom to be gleaned from looking at the farmer, just like Proverbs says, go to the ant and learn that he works all day without a captain. Okay, that learn from this illustration. Jesus, when he taught parables, was not... Uh, speaking out of context of the Old Testament, there are always these word pictures and illustrations. And so you have that in a poetic form here. God is instructing the farmer that there's a right sequence to do things and you should gain wisdom from that too so you would know God and his farming. He's not just going to be plowing and harrowing. For not with a threshing sledge does he thresh dill. Apparently that's the wrong way. If you were a dill farmer, you'd be laughing your head off at the idea of using a threshing sledge to thresh dill because that's not how you do it. I don't know anything about it, but I know that that's the, what the Hebrew is saying here. Nor is the cartwheel upon cumin run around. I know this. If you've got some herbs growing, you don't grab your cart and run around on top of the herbs and crush it down into the mud. That's not the proper use of the farming uh, equipment, <laughs> okay? So he's saying there's a right way to do things, and God is a good farmer. He does things well, and you should think about this as you listen and take heed. For with a rod, dill is beaten, with cumin, and cumin is, is beaten with a staff. Bread is crushed. Indeed, he does not continue to thresh it forever because the wheel of his cart and his horses eventually damage it. He does not thresh it longer. So all through here, we're hearing there's an end to this step of threshing. There's an end to the harrowing. There's an end to the plowing. So there's an end. I've heard wrath, 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 doom, doom. There's an end to it is the point that he's making in a poetic form is my interpretation. Indeed, this comes from the Lord Sabaoth. He has caused, now this is your summary, he has caused counsel to be wonderful. He's made prudence great. He has made wonderful counsel and he's made, made great his prudence. And so 
take the lesson. Now, it's a riddle, and I've interpreted the riddle about the farmer, and I contend that the farmer's riddle is that there's an end to the violent stuff because God actually wants to build and plant and have a harvest, and that's what he's going for. Let's summarize some theological ideas that we've gained tonight with our long and painful attention that you've paid, and uh, you're to be... uh, you're to be greatly commended for sticking with it. And the first thing I want to say is that the problem here for the uh, Judahites and the Ephraimites is not, um, is not Assyria. It's God. And so this is what we do is we go after the problem that God is bringing to us. We don't go to God. Now, in divine discipline, it's God. In suffering for blessing as you're being tested and God's bringing forth proven character, it's God. And your recourse is always to him. Secondly, and this is real brief, we're almost done. Rejecting God's word means rejecting God. That's, you can't have one and, and, and not the other. You can't, and this is the weird thing, the scholar that hates God or doesn't believe in Christ and doesn't believe in God, but yet studies the Bible and then teaches other people to disregard God because they're in academe and uh, antiquity scholars or Hebrew, Hebrew and Greek departments throughout all the evangelicals, <laughs> a lot of the evangelical uh, Hebrew prof- professors. Um, rejecting God's word, is that too much? Maybe that's me. Maybe I'll just say in Christendom. We, we don't want to beat on evangelicals too much. Post-conservative as they may be, rejecting Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch and denying the literal interpretation of the scriptures uh, as they should be, and, uh, th- though, they, though they do. So rejecting God's word is, is about rejecting God. And this is the problem of our, of our hearts, of our lives, and our culture. We in Agri as a people are rejecting God's word as a lifestyle. But the, gr- the good news is that you don't have to join the culture and it's slide. And I'm like Isaiah now talking to my culture with the same message. I don't come up with the message. I got it from Isaiah, but it's the same idea. Remnant of, of believers in Christ in this day, in this country, the problem with your people is that they are aggregately rejecting God because they're in aggregate rejecting his word and they go hand in hand and you don't have to join them. And there's stability for you if you'll stay the course. God in grace and mercy to Judah and the Northern Kingdom continue to share his word with them even though they rejected it. There's never been more accessibility to God's word for the rank and file the hoi polloi, uh, man on the street, and than there is in this country right now. I don't know if the government knows it, but when they give away free phones to, for votes or however they do that thing, when they give away a free phone, they're actually sharing the word of God. Because if, if, they, if someone with a free government phone comes to me, I'm going to show them a couple apps they can download on their phone and then stop playing games and stop, stop whatever they're doing with their wasting time and start reading the scriptures because it's so easily accessible and available. And, uh, oh, you don't speak English? Well, what's your language? Let's put it on there. It's, we, it's there. It's free. It's instantly accessible. God continues to share his word with us. And fourth, if they'd had the wisdom to listen to God, they would have known what to do. And that's the way that's, that little poem concludes, is gain some wisdom. If you'll listen to him, you'll know exactly what he wants from you. He wants you to fear him. And that's a wonderful biblical term for what a creature does in the face of the infinite omnipotence, magnificence, and glory of your creator. If they had wisdom to listen, then they would have known what to do. And fifth, the question I want to pose to you, do you have that wisdom? Do you have the know-how to live your life before God that comes from listening to what he said? Or are you like most Christians today in this culture? I'm sorry to say, are you like most Christians that think, well, I mean, I don't really know the word very well, but I love the Lord. I mean, I don't care about hearing his word very much, but I just love Jesus. 
And it's, it's a real contradiction. It's a, it's a horrible contradiction. Do you have that wisdom? Here's a great example. I'm sorry, I, I got to say it. The idea that we would study the Bible in church is a foreign concept to Christians today, that we would study it, that we would dig a little bit, think these things through, that you stay with it. It's completely foreign to the idea. You're supposed to be entertained. I'm supposed to say some five steps to how you could be a better whatever. Because the idea of studying the Bible, this is what we do in school. Pastor, this is like a college uh, lecture. That's for school. Now, what I just said is a ridiculous absurdity if you look at history because the idea of school comes out of the church because we're trying to teach people to read the Bible. And the whole concept of university was originally a a product of of a sophisticated uh, scholastic movement within uh, Christendom. So the whole idea of school and study comes in this culture from the, the desire to study the Bible. So when we actually do it here at the sacred desk, the pulpit, no, can't do it there. We're supposed to, you know, you're, you're breaking this down like you would study, I don't know, a poem or, or, or a, a great novel in literature class. We can't read the Bible like that. <laughs> yeah, we can and we should. Do you have the wisdom to hear God's word and to live your life by it? Because um, even in this oracle of judgment, that's the message. And it's with us every day, every day. Number six of seven. There is a conclusion to plowing and harrowing. There is an end. If you're under divine discipline, there is a, an end point of divine discipline. The bell eventually rings and you can go back to your corner and catch a breath. Don't consume a lot of water if you're in the middle of a boxing match. Just breathe. You're about to have to go right back to it. But there is a rest. There is a break. And last, there is planting just around the corner. There is the glory that is to come. And you always want to remember that in God's oracles of, of destruction and doom, there's always deliverance and blessing. Our Father, thank you for the blessing of your word tonight, the challenge of it, and the place and time we've been able to share in these things together. Strengthen us, help our kids that heard some of this message, and I help them grow in it and, and have the wisdom to listen to what you've said and think your thoughts after you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.